The following message was delivered at the 2022 Covenant Conference hosted by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. The conference was held on March 17th to 19th in Louisville, Kentucky, and the conference theme was, I Will Build My Church, Taking Up the Urgent Task of Missions and Church Planting. Well, it is a joy and privilege again to be together, especially as we consider this wondrous topic that Christ is building his church. And you are evidence of that, aren't you? That he has plucked you as a brand from the fire and brought you into the kingdom, his kingdom. Well, let's take a moment and pray once again. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a wondrous privilege it is to call you our Father, that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, our prayer, our deepest prayer even now, is that your name would be hallowed. Hallowed in our hearts, that we would set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, and hallowed in the entirety of this world and this universe, that you would receive the praise, honor, and glory due to your name alone. May you be honored in this hour. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So said Juliet in her famed soliloquy in Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. You see, as a Capulet, uh, she knew that she was not permitted to even associate, much less marry, someone from the house of Montague her family's arch enemy in their generations-long blood feud. But see, in her star-crossed eyes, uh, that didn't matter. She doesn't want to be with Romeo uh, because of his name. She just wants to be with him. His name is unimportant to her. It carries no real import, no real significance. It's merely an arbitrary name. What's in a name? And while such may seemingly be the case in a Shakespearean love story, I submit to you this morning that it's certainly not the case in the love story that is the greatest love story of all, the love of God for his people, the love of Christ for his bride, the church. See, in this true love story, names matter. Names have great significance. Names have meaning, especially the name of the Lord our God. The name that reveals his nature, the name that reveals his character, his glory. Listen to some of this panoply of praise that we hear coming from the psalmists about the glory of God's name. Psalm 8.1, O oh Lord, or our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 66, shout to joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Psalm 72, verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, the name of the Lord is holy. We dare not take it in vain. For his name is by no means empty of significance or meaning. His name reveals himself. It reveals his glory. And that brings us to the topic of this session, the mission of God and the Old Testament. By mission of God, uh, or the missio dei, it's meant not only the activity of God in missions, but the purpose, the end, and the goal of God. Mission implies both the purpose and the corresponding effort and strategy to achieve that purpose. And what is God's purpose in all things but his own glory? You know the statement from John Piper, perhaps. He says, the chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Which is why he writes in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, this statement, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, countless millions of redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God. Missions will be no more, but worship abides forever. See, being known, being worshipped is God's mission. That is God's purpose in all that he does. In his two great acts, his act of both creation and his act of redemption, his mission is to make his glory known. Consider how God's purpose, how his mission to make himself known works out in creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all that he made was very good. And what did it do? All of creation reflected the glory of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Our own confession of faith of 1689 says in its chapter on creation, in the beginning it pleased God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for, here's the purpose statement, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create the world. The manifestation and spread of God's glory is most keenly felt, we could say, in the fact that he made man in his image. He made you in his image. He created us. He blessed man. He said to man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. G.K. Beale says of Genesis 1.28 this, that this is actually the first great commission. The commission was to bless the earth, and part of the essence of this blessing was God's salvific or blessed presence, to be in the presence of God. And before the fall, Adam and Eve were to produce progeny, image bearers that would fill the earth with God's glory being reflected from each of them. You see, to fill the whole world with his image bearers who know him, who trust him, who love him, who enjoy him, was and is the very mission of God. Now, as we know, God's purpose to make himself known and his glory known was challenged right away by that ancient serpent, the devil. And you remember in his own diabolical question that he asks to Eve, the first time we hear him speak in Scripture, he says, did God really say? What was that but an attack on the very character and nature of God himself? To say God doesn't really care. God isn't really good. Sadly, Adam and Eve took the bait. They believed the lie. And they sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, seeking to be their own gods, pursuing their own glory apart from God, marring the image of God in them, and plunging humanity into the state of sin and misery under the wrath and curse of God. And fallen humanity has been seeking to glorify ourselves instead of God ever since. Just as we read in the Tower of Babel, what was their whole purpose? That we might make a name for ourselves. When God came down, you remember in Genesis chapter 11, He scatters them. He sends them into exile, as it were. Just as He exiled Adam and Eve out of the garden east of Eden and away from the blessed presence of the Lord. But beloved... Even the fall could not thwart God's purpose to make his name and glory known. Because God's ultimate purpose in redemption is the same, to make his glory known. Right after the fall, you remember God himself pursues Adam and Eve. God himself comes. He gives them opportunity to repent and he promises to them the coming seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent there in Genesis 3.15. Roger Greenway says that we see for the first time in the book of Genesis that God is a missionary God. The Redeemer will come. He will restore the image of God in his people the Redeemer will make the character of God rightly and truly known contra the devil. The Redeemer, in his redemption, will make himself and God's glory known. If this really is, then, the purpose of God, his mission in both creation and redemption, to make himself, to make his glory known, then we should expect to see this throughout the Scripture in all of his acts, in all of his acts of redemption. And that means in the Old Testament, this mission should especially be seen in the Exodus. 
because the Exodus is the primary model of redemption in the Old Testament. As one author says, with Israel's Exodus out of Egypt through Moses, God has established a paradigm, the pattern for understanding the salvation of all of his people, including Israel and the nations, through Jesus, the Messiah. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time is to consider how we see God's mission, his purpose to make himself and his glory known, his name known, exemplified in the greatest Old Testament act of redemption, the Exodus. It's so central that it becomes the very paradigm that permeates the whole of the Old Testament, is referred back to all the time, and it even is a paradigm that permeates the New Testament. So as we focus on the Old Testament, I want to highlight for us three things. This is what we're going to see. First, the pattern of the Exodus prefigured in the life of Abraham. The pattern of the Exodus prefigured in the life of Abraham. Then secondly, we'll see the purpose of the Exodus proclaimed by the Lord himself. And then lastly, the promise of a new Exodus proclaimed by the prophets. So let's start by considering the pattern of the Exodus prefigured in the life of Abraham. You see, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been the God of the Exodus, where by his power and by his grace, he calls exiles out of darkness, out of alienation, to come home and to be with him forever on his holy mountain to glorify his name. That's the meaning of Exodus. But you see... Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to do a sweep through much of Scripture, but focus in Genesis to begin with. In Genesis chapter 11, we see the problem, don't we, of exile, the problem of alienation from God. Humanity after the flood did not love God, did not obey God. They sought, as we've already said, to build a tower to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11, verse 4. And what was the result Verse 7, come, let us go down, and they're confused, their language, so that they cannot understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building the city. The result is that they're scattered. They're divided into nations by language. The languages are confused in that sense. They can't understand one another. And so in a real sense, the result of their rebellion, the result of their sin is deeper alienation and further exile from the presence of God. Deeper alienation from one another as nation is against nation now and away from God's special presence. And as you come to the end of chapter 11, what we need to remember is that Abram is one of those who was scattered. His family was one of those that was exiled. He's one who is worshiping false gods in Ur of the Chaldees. And yet, when we come to the end of chapter 11, to the beginning of chapter 12, what do we find but this glimmer of hope again because the God of the Exodus calls Abram out of exile. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You have these wondrous promises as God calls him to come out of exile. The first promise is the promise of a place. Leave what you know, leave Ur of the Chaldees, and come to a place I will show you. Follow me, God says. And then there's the promise of a people. I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. And then there's the promise of this glorious part to play in God's plan of redemption. As he says that he is going to make Abram's name great. Here we learn a great name comes not from trying to make your name yourself, but from loving and obeying God. God is the one who makes your name great because his name is the greatest. But how? How will God make Abram's or Abraham's name great? It's by making Abram the instrument through whom the blessing of exodus out of slavery to sin and exile from God comes to the nations. That's what's being said here. You're the first fruits of those I'm calling out of the nations. And it's through those who have a connection with you, Abram, I will bless those who bless you. Those who have the same faith that you will have, that you have now, that you will grow in, faith in the God of Abraham, that's how all the families of the earth will be blessed. Michael Morales says this, as the first human being to experience a reversal of the spiritual exile narrated in Genesis 11, Abraham himself stands as the first fruits of the international deliverance. The call out of Ur was, in other words, an exodus. So from the very beginning of God's call to Abraham, God's concern is to bring the exiled nations home through an exodus. And this is just the start of the Abraham narrative. We're just in Genesis chapter 12. The Exodus is prefigured in so many other ways from Genesis 12 to 22, and I don't have five hours to show you all of them. But I will show you at least three more. So let me give you some highlights. Notice the pattern of the Exodus prefigured in Abram's experience right away from Genesis chapter 12, verse 4 to chapter 13. I'm not going to read it, but you know this, this section of Scripture. In Genesis 12, verses 4 to 9, Abram obeys the call of God. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees, and he comes to Haran. There in verse 5, he leaves Haran. Then it says he goes to Shechem. In verse 6, he builds an altar there to the Lord. And then he goes to Bethel, and he builds an altar to the Lord there. Now, as you read the rest of Genesis, your ears should start to tingle as you recognize this is a pattern. Jacob, also named Israel, what does he do? He goes to Haran to find a wife, and when he comes back, where does he go? To Shechem. He builds an altar there, and from there he goes where? To Bethel, and he builds an altar there. He traces the exact pattern of Abram. And then, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, all the way to chapter 13, verse 1. This is where you know Abram and Sarai do what? They go down to Egypt and come back again. 
Verse 10, they go down to Egypt. Why? Because of a famine in the land. Isn't that why Jacob and his whole family, Genesis 40 to 50, go down to Egypt? Because of a severe famine in the land. And then verse 15, Sarah is, the language is seized by Pharaoh. Taken. (laughs) Right? Exodus chapter 1, Israel is enslaved by Pharaoh. And then verse 17 of chapter 12, it can be translated this way, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God plagues Pharaoh. He does the same thing in Exodus 7 to 12 to liberate Israel. And then in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. They go with all that Pharaoh had given to him back in verse 16. In a real sense, it's a pattern of plundering the Egyptians. We read in Exodus chapter 12. These connections, what they do is they demonstrate that the life-shaping and identity-establishing event of Israel, the Exodus, was by a degree true of Israel's patriarchs. Beloved, this is the pattern for all of God's people. The pattern of humiliation before exaltation. This is the pattern you've gone through by the grace of Christ if you're a Christian here today. Another highlight from the life of Abraham. So we've seen the pattern of Exodus prefigured in his experience. But then there's the promise and the preview of the Exodus of Israel in Genesis chapter 15. So turn to Genesis 15 now. Genesis 15 is made up of two visionary encounters that Abram has with God. In both of these encounters, there's first a declaration made by God. And then a question by Abraham, how will I know this is true? And then God graciously, mercifully, giving a sign to confirm that what he declared will take place. Verses 1 to 6 is that first encounter. It's dealing with the promise of a people. Who's going to inherit? Is it going to be Eliezer, my servant? By no means. Look at the stars of the sky. You will have a son of your own, and you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And then verses 7 to 20 is dealing with the promise of a place. The promise to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. And notice how the Lord begins, verse 7. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. (laughs) What's he saying? He's Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, who delivered Abram out of Ur. It's an echo of what we hear in Exodus chapter 20, the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Yahweh is the God who brings his people out of exile and home to himself. Abraham then asked, how is he to know that he will possess the land? That's what he says in verse 8. God responds then with this covenant ceremony. You're familiar with it where he tells Abram to take certain animals, to cut them in half and line them up. So there they are, the bloody carcasses. The vultures are coming down. Abram shoes them away. And then God gives the promise, which is a promise about the exodus of Israel. Notice verse 13. No 
for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The promise that God will fulfill is the promise of the Exodus. And then right after that, verse 17, the sun goes down, and what happens is there's this smoking fire pot that goes through the pieces of animal. Now, while this act is certainly, I would say, God taking that maledictory oath of the covenant upon himself, that if I do not keep this promise, may the curses come upon me. While that is true, in the context of just having spoken of the Exodus, I submit to you that what he also is doing is giving a visionary preview of the Exodus itself. For what you have is a flaming torch passing through walls of dead animals, which is a picture of Israel passing through the walls of death of the Red Sea, led by a pillar of fire by the Lord safely to the other side. You see, by this act, the Lord shows Abraham how safe passage through death in the Exodus will occur. It's going to occur through bloody sacrifice, through being led by a pillar of fire. That leads us to another highlight. We come to the end of the Abram narrative, really, at least the highlight of it, the climax of it, Genesis chapter 22. And what we have here is the Passover prefigured. The Passover. The angel of death passing over the house, houses of Israel. This is actually Abraham's last recorded encounter with God in the book of Genesis. We read in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. So this is a test. And he calls upon him to take his only son, that is, his son of promise, not Ishmael, the son of the flesh, the son of promise, who has all the rights, all the privileges of what? Of the firstborn, because he's the one who's the heir. And what's he to do? To offer him up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord on Mount Moriah. And we know what happens, don't we? In faith, Abraham obeys. Note what he says, though, in, in verse 8. He goes with faith after, after Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they go, and they go up to the mountain. He obeys, and you remember what happens. At the last moment, as the knife is raised, and he's about to plunge it into the breast of his only son, Isaac, the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, he says, fear my Lord, stop. Now I know that you fear the Lord. And he looks and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And he sacrifices the ram in the place of his firstborn son. Isaac, the firstborn child of promise, is saved through the substitute of a ram, just as all the firstborn of Israel are saved in the Passover by the blood of the lambs put on the doorposts and the lintel. I want you to notice, after this act of obedience, the Lord speaks and he has a future orientation. 
as well as a concern for the nations once again. Notice what's said in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now in the original, the word provide is from the root to see. Another way to say it then is this mount is called or the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it that the sacrifice necessary will be provided. What that means is there's still an expectation of another sacrifice, of the Lord providing another substitute even after he's provided this ram for Isaac. Furthermore, notice what the Lord says to Abraham in verses 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your seed, your offspring, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. At the beginning and at the end of this Abraham narrative is a concern for what? For the nations. Abram is exiled not just for himself, but that through his seed, the nations would experience an exodus as well. And it's no mere coincidence that this final encounter between God and Abraham take place on a mountain, on Mount Moriah, at that. For it's on this very mountain, you know, that the temple will be built. First, or Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. This, then, would be the very location where hundreds and thousands of Passover lambs will be slaughtered in the temple. And it is the place where the Passover lamb will give his life as a ransom for many. But what I want you to recognize is that this is the climax of the Abraham narrative. And Abraham, the first fruits of the nations, the first fruits of those exiled from the nations, is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of exile in Genesis chapter 12. And where does he end up at the climax? But on God's holy mountain on the holy mountain where God himself recognizes, now I know that you fear me. He's taken out of the darkness of idolatry to the place of glorying in the name of God. That's the exodus. Abraham, the father of many nations, is the pattern and the picture of both the exodus of Israel and the exodus of the nations. But now we must hasten on to the purpose of the exodus pronounced by the Lord himself. And here we need to turn to the book of Exodus because now we go forward to what we can call the exodus proper. And we see once again, even at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the problem of exile and alienation. Certainly, the nations living away from God's presence have only become more ignorant of God 
in the darkness of their idolatry, as is the case with Egypt and all of their pantheon of false gods. The ignorance of Egypt is all the more culpable because the Pharaoh under Joseph, at least, had some sense. But notice, you get the hint of the ignorance of Egypt. Ignorance concerning Yahweh in chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. But more than that, we can say he did not know Joseph's God. And that's made clear for us in Exodus chapter 5. You remember Moses and Aaron go in for the first time into Pharaoh and give the message from the Lord. They say the declaration, Yahweh says, let my people go that they may serve me. And what is Pharaoh's response? Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. You see, Egypt and the nations are ignorant, willfully ignorant of God. But it seems that Israel, in their time in Egypt, have also become ignorant of the Lord. They're suffering a degree of darkness. It's hinted at in certain ways at the beginning. You remember how after they're in slavery, it says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, that they cried out for help. Conspicuously, absence is who they cried out to. It doesn't say, the text does not say that they cried out to the Lord. Now, the Lord heard, and he's answering, but they just cried out. You see, while God's people might forget him, he never forgets them. But it's further hinted at in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. You remember at the burning bush where Moses is there, and God says, go, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses comes up with his at least five different excuses of why God should not send him. One of them is this, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? See, it's a hint that they do not even remember God's name. In a sense, God tells Moses to remind Israel of who he is. He is the I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's who. Further evidence of their ignorance and even of their idolatry comes to us later in Joshua chapter 24 where remember Joshua says this in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers that they serve beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Started to serve false gods. There's darkness, there's ignorance of the Lord of Yahweh by the nations, by Egypt, and by Israel, which is why The purpose, the mission of the Lord in the Exodus is to make his name known. He's going to make his name known. And he's going to make it known in a new and fuller way to his own people. Exodus chapter 6. Where what we have is Moses discouraged because he goes in, delivers the message to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't comply right away. And in fact, the Israelite foreman 
curse Moses and Aaron and blame them. And Moses is despondent and discouraged. And what we have in Exodus chapter 6 is the Lord giving a sermon to Moses. Did you know that when you're discouraged, what you need is a sermon? And Moses hears the Lord speak to him. And part of what he says is there in chapter 6, verse 3, and he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. What is God saying? He is not saying that the patriarchs did not know the name Yahweh. Read through Genesis. Abraham calls on Yahweh. He knows the name. It's there in Genesis 12. But the significance of the name awaited the fuller revelation of the Exodus. As one author puts it, the Exodus unveils the being and attributes of God as no other event thus far in redemptive history. To experience the Exodus is to learn about Yahweh himself. He's going to make his name known to his people in a deeper, fuller way. And Yahweh's also going to make himself known to the Egyptians and the nations as well. And that's clear from all the Lord's purpose statements throughout the book of Exodus. Let me just give you a sampling. Chapter 7, verse 5, what does he say? The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Chapter 5, verse 17. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. Chapter 8, verse 10. So we're working through the plagues. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 22. The plague of flies. What do we see? He says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14, the plague of hail. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But as for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, that is the Lord's mission. That is his purpose. Notice, if God's goal was simply to relieve his people from suffering, he could have done it in Exodus chapter 7. But that's not God's ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is his own glory, and his goal in your life is not to relieve you of all your suffering, but that you would be glorified, that he would be glorified in your suffering. And so, because that's his purpose, it makes sense as to why he waits so long and that's what you need to remember when you wait so long in your wilderness wandering and suffering in this life now. Your purpose is to be God's purpose, His glory. 
Turn to Exodus 14. Because in Exodus 14, you see it here again, this purpose statement when we come to this great act of the parting of the Red Sea. Exodus 14 and verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then look at verse 18 as well. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Through the Exodus, through the Red Sea, through all the plagues, Yahweh reveals who he is. He reveals that he alone is Lord over all creation. Think of all the acts, how he turns water into blood. He controls flies, frogs, seas. He is the Lord of all creation because he created it and he controls it. He reveals that he is Yahweh, who alone is God. All other gods are false gods. They are no gods at all. You may know this, that each plague actually shows the impotence of Egypt's false gods. You can run through each one and see how it's going against one of these false gods of Egypt. The plague of blood is against Happy, the god of the Nile. The plague of frogs against Heket, the goddess of childbirth who looks like a frog. The darkness is against Amun-Re, the sun god. They are no gods at all. Yahweh alone is God. Even when he's talking about the Passover, Exodus 12, verse 12, he says this. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. More than this, by the Exodus, the Lord reveals that he is Yahweh, the faithful covenant God who keeps all his promises. When Moses was discouraged, the Lord preached to him a sermon. In Exodus chapter 6, he said this, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you out of, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And he did it. You see, the people of Israel experience he is who he says he is. I am who I am. Because Yahweh always accomplishes his mission. The Egyptians, through this whole ordeal of the Exodus, they do come to know the power and might of the Lord. During the plagues, you remember the magicians themselves say, this is the finger of God. During the ninth plague of hail, some of Pharaoh's own servants feared the word of the Lord, it says in Exodus 9.20, and brought their animals in so they wouldn't be destroyed by the hail. And it may even be that some of the Egyptians went with Israel through the Red Sea, left Egypt with them, because it says in Exodus 12, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. 
Whether that's true or not, nevertheless, through the Exodus, the Egyptians learned their gods are nothing and Yahweh alone is God. The surrounding nations also come to know the Lord in this way as well. So much so that a whole generation later, as Israel's entering into the land and they come and the spies meet this prostitute named Rahab, what does she say in Joshua 2 verse 11? As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The nations come to know the Lord. And Israel also came to know Yahweh in a deeper and fuller way, such that they could sing that the Lord is their God in Exodus chapter 15. You see, they've come to know not only the Lord's incomparable might and power, but also His glory and redeeming love. Exodus 15, verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. They've come to know the Lord as their God. And in verse 11, They sing, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And here again, I want you to notice, how does this song end? Verse 17, you, Yahweh, will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The goal of the Exodus is always to bring his people all the way home to be with him on his holy mountain. You see it throughout the scriptures. It's all there. They've come to know the Lord, his power, his might. The goal of the Exodus, to bring them to the holy mountain, to glorify him forever. You know, it's not really fulfilled in one sense for Israel until we come to the book of Kings. It's then, finally then, that you have the building of the temple by Solomon on Mount Moriah. And it's then that you hear Solomon say this, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house of the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. The house of what? For the name of the Lord. And as that house is dedicated, Solomon prays, and what does he pray? Part of what he prays is this, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that the house that I have built is called by your name. As with Abraham, there is concern to bring the exiled nations home to God. That's the whole point. 
But is Israel faithful to her mission? Does Israel stand as a light to the nations as they were called to do and be? Sadly, we know the answer, don't we? And that's why there is, in the third place, the promise of a new exodus proclaimed by the prophets. The darkness and ignorance occur in Israel again, and it's not long after the high point of the building of the temple. 1 Kings 8, go to 1 Kings 11. There it is. Solomon, who built the house for God's name, loved many foreign wives. And his heart was turned away from the Lord and to their false gods. Contrary to what the law of God says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he does everything that the law says not to do. He says, don't get many wives, don't accumulate wealth, don't have a big army. He does all of that. And his heart is turned away from the Lord. The downward spiral of idolatry and ignorance continues so that eventually you know what happens. The Lord must bring his covenant curses upon his own people. They must go into exile again. The northern kingdom by Assyria, 722 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah, when the temple that Solomon built for God's name is destroyed because Israel isn't worshiping the Lord. But through his prophets, the Lord proclaims there's a new and greater exodus coming. And again, I don't have five hours to go through all of that. But I will give you a sampling once again. Think of the prophet Hosea called to be like the Lord, to be a living picture, to go marry a prostitute because Israel has committed spiritual adultery. And I want to show Israel what redeeming love looks like that is faithful and persistent. Hosea, marry that prostitute. And you pursue her, even as she's unfaithful. Because that's the kind of God that I am. I always accomplish my mission. And so you can hear the language of a new exodus. Hosea 2 verse 14, God says, I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. New exodus. Isaiah was a contemporary prophet of Hosea, and he says this in Isaiah 51, using the language of Exodus, he says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab, read Egypt, in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. That's new exodus. And it's not just Israel. We hear that it's the nations. This is what our brother Paul Washer quoted last night from Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Beloved, do you realize that that's what happens every single Lord's Day? That what we're doing is we're coming to Mount Zion. You do not come to Mount Sinai, Hebrews chapter 12. You come to Mount Zion, to the place where Christ is seated, the right hand of God. 
And every Lord's Day, I love to think about this in the morning on the Lord's Day as I wake up, how God's people, there are a portion in the world from the Philippines and all over Africa and and Europe, they're already there. They're already praising Christ and we get to then join with them as we are lifted up by the Holy Spirit to heaven by faith. This is Isaiah 2. And it ends there in verse 5 saying, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah also says in Jeremiah chapter 16, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land and that I gave to their fathers. New Exodus. And what's the Lord's purpose? What's his mission of this new and greater Exodus, Jeremiah 16, verse 21, therefore behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. When did the new Exodus occur? When did it happen? Beloved, it's not with the physical return to the land of, by Israel after exile. Because though they returned in body, they did not return in spirit. It was but a dim foretaste of the new exodus. But it's with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, who is true Israel. Who follows the same exodus pattern that we've seen throughout You read through the Gospel of Matthew, why does he say the things he says in the first several chapters? Because he's tracing the whole pattern of the Exodus. Jesus follows the same pattern. He goes down into Egypt. He comes back up. Out of Egypt I called my son. He crosses the Jordan and he goes to a mountain. He's saying, I'm the one that's bringing the new Exodus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, is the one who became our Passover lamb. He is the one who accomplished the exodus there on the cross. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration as he's speaking with Moses and Elijah, what are they talking about? Luke chapter 9 verse 31 tells us they're speaking about the exodus he's about to accomplish, his departure. That's what the text says. And there, on the cross, he experienced the darkness of eternal exile, of alienation from God for our sins, for the sins of his people, so that we could be brought home to the light, to the glory of God on the mountain of God forever. How did Jesus describe his mission? What was the purpose of his exodus? Perhaps the most glorious place to hear Jesus speak about his purpose, his mission, is in his communion with his heavenly Father. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, you hear our Savior's heart, don't you? And what does he say about his mission? John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name. To the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Jesus came to make God known, to make the Father known, to make himself known as what? As the I am who I am. John's gospel, seven times Jesus says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine. I am the one who is life and who gives life. I am the great I am. Jesus came to make himself, to make God known. And further, he closes his prayer with these words in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus today continues to make God's name known, and he does it through you, his people. That's what mission is all about. It's God's mission, and Jesus will see to it that God's mission is finally and fully accomplished, that he will bring all of his people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language all the way home to be with him forever. This is the mission of God. And you see, all our work of missions must be about God's mission to make his name and his glory known in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Our mission then is God's mission, is to call the nations to bless the seed of Abraham, that in him they will find true blessing. To call the nations out of the darkness of exile into the light of the exodus of Jesus, to know and glorify his name. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And for God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what's in a name? When it comes to the name of Yahweh, when it comes to the name of Jesus, everything, everything, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are but feeble. Men, women, boys, and girls, you are the glorious God. You are also our Father. Would you exalt your name in and through us for your glory, we pray. Amen.